the pursuit of wealth in in a compromised way is just another aspect of the devil's perversion of God's intention. So God's intention is that we would be fruitful people, we would multiply, we would uh, take Eden and spread it throughout the rest of the world. And what the devil does is he perverts. We get gain, but we get gain unjustly. And when we're participating in unjust gain, then we're perverting God's original intention. I think this is an area where Christians often get tripped up, where they think to gain is uh, implicitly wrong or inherently wrong. But that's not the picture that I see in, in the Bible at all. It's, it's unjust gain that's wrong. Welcome back, everybody, to the Good Theology Podcast. So good to have you with us today. I'm Jake, and I am here with David Campbell, and we are so pleased that you are tuning in. Before we begin today, let me just take a moment and ask, beg, grovel, ask kindly for you to go over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It helps us a huge deal. Even if you're not a YouTube person, if you don't ever like watching these kinds of things, uh, it would still be hugely helpful. But if you do like YouTube, then we are on YouTube. Just look up Good Theology, and we're putting all kinds of good stuff up on there. And as for all of our episodes so far this year, today is brought to you by Dwell Bible. Since launching in 2018, Dwell's mission has been to help Christians rediscover the ancient practice of listening to Scripture through their beautiful digital experience. Dwell offers more than 20 handpicked voices across 11 translations. Most likely your favorite translation is in there. And now Dwell has built a platform to help pastors and leaders keep people rooted in God's word every day by helping them to listen to scripture, which is very enriching, by the way. So you can invite your church, if you're a pastor or church leader, you can invite them to participate. There's easy to use tools. There's a uh, playlist that you can build out, plans that you can encourage people to participate in. Maybe you want them to go deeper into Sunday sermon by reflecting upon certain scriptures, all kinds of creative things that you can do to help disciple your church. And right now, Dwell offers a 30-day trial on all new accounts. You can get started by going to dwellbible.com slash good or texting good, G-O-O-D, to 39383. So good to have you all with us. David, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Still in Indiana? Well, I'm in Michigan at in Centerville, Michigan. Oh, I thought you were in Indiana. Well, I, I'm in Indiana by night. Uh, so wow. the church here, Burn Foundation, is right on the border of Michigan, more or less on the border of Michigan, Indiana. So we're staying across the line in Indiana. Um, but kind of church slowly that I'm in and I'm boring. One of the pastor's offices here uh, is in the great state of Michigan. If people do happen to watch any of this on YouTube, they would see your amazing backdrop right now which consists of a great pastor's library, but some very interesting st statues. I've, I see at least one Jesus up there, and then I think there's a superhero flanking him to his right. It's probably my friend Rod's grandchildren, something they've made for him or something like that. Ah, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, we have a lot to talk about today. Some really, really good stuff. We're finishing up our incarnation book. And, um, oh, that's right. I wanted to ask you about a passage in the book of Revelation. 
to finish out our How to Read the Bible segment. So we'll try to get there as well. But before we do that, we've got to talk about Sam Smith. Because last Sunday, when we're recording this, it was last Sunday. I think this goes up a week later. There was the Grammys and Sam Smith. First of all, David, do you know who Sam Smith is? Barely. Did you know who he was before I sent you the article the other day? Um, probably if you'd said his name, I wouldn't have known who he was. I mean, I barely know who he is. I, I also am very, not to say you're out of touch, but I am out of touch. <laughs> I'm definitely out of touch with pop pop music and um, and probably pop culture as a whole. But he's a pop artist and... Uh, you know, he's he's gone through a few iterations of himself, if you will. I think at first he came out as gay and now he's a they. He's a he's a they them, I think. Um, trends trends I don't know. He looks like a man to me. Um I don't mean to be denigrating, but I, I don't understand. So he had this performance and uh he dressed up as the devil and it was, uh, I guess he's, you know, trying to make Satan look sexy and had a bunch of, you know, dancers and all that. And I think there was some like women dressed quite, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Provocatively. Ah, yes. Provocatively in a cage. Um, and I guess that it was singing a single that he has, the single is called Unholy, so... You know, no surprises there. Um, and he co-wrote it or co-performed it with a uh, a transgender woman. So, a man. Um, and again, you know, as much as I disagree with all of this stuff, I'm not trying to make, you know, mean mockery. I just legitimately get confused about these things sometimes. And so the internet blew up, you know, all of the, the uh, conservative movement in America had a lot to say about it, and rightfully so. It is insane looking and actually revolting. The, the performance is, is revolting. Um, and yet it's crazy to me. Like it actually does baffle me that on a Sunday night at the Grammys, this is what you're going to now expect to watch. Like, I watched the Grammys all the time as a teenager. And it was, you know, probably some risque stuff on there. But I don't think my parents ever had to worry about a pop star dressing up as the devil himself and having some girls dance in a cage, sending a very uh, interesting message about not just sexuality, but Maybe even spirituality. I'm, I'm not sure. Any thoughts from you? Well, uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, had it right when he said the enemy is at his most powerful uh, when he's disguised, uh, and in a way, I think when it starts to come out into the open. Uh, Satan kind of blows his cover 
Uh, and so what's hardly more dangerous was when you were watching it and there was stuff happening, but it wasn't completely obviously wrong, but it was wrong. Uh, now at least you can see that it's wrong. And in one sense, I feel when the enemy comes out into the open, then we know what we're dealing with. And, you know, people have to make a choice. Uh, I mean, is it, is it disgusting, uh, disgraceful, however you want to put it, that that sort of thing is aired uh, on television? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Would you want your children watching it? Or would you want to watch it yourself? No, you wouldn't. Um, same as some of the halftime shows for Super Bowl and stuff like that. You know, it, it's just got worse and worse. But I do think it's coming out into the open. And uh, that's that, in some respects, is not a bad thing. Because people get to thinking, um, you know, this is where, is this where it's heading? Is this where the sort of postmodern, critical theory, woke stuff is heading? It's easy when uh, people are using some legitimate concern like racial injustice, uh, and they're using it to promote a far deeper agenda. Right. But people are sucked into it because externally or at first sight, it seems to be a just cause. Right. But then you get sucked into it and a whole lot of other, other stuff starts to happen. But this is just blatant. And so uh, a lot of people looking at it, people who aren't Christians at all, looking at it, probably are saying, hey, uh, you know, um, okay, I, I signed on to some of this and being sympathetic, but if this is where it's going, I don't really think I want myself or my children living in this kind of world. Let's explore that a little bit. So when you say, you know, hey, I signed on to this, but I don't like where it's going, that's one of the things that I was thinking about. What are some of the earlier stages of where we've arrived that people signed on to perhaps in, you know, naivety or likely in naivety without realizing that this is where the train was headed. Like what, what's the, what's the pre, you know, philosophical. Well, I think it's, undergirding. it's easy to sell a message that, you know, people who are, for instance, in the LGBTQ, uh, plus, 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 you know, they keep adding numbers and letters. Um, people who are in that community have, have, have had a hard time of it. They've been treated badly. They've been semi-persecuted. Um, and that's not right. Uh, and, and so people look at that and say, yeah, uh, I, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I think that that's wrong. People, everyone you know, should be treated equally and with dignity and so on. Um, and that's the thin end of the wedge. Uh, but in behind it comes a whole nother agenda. And the agenda is actually to eradicate people who have a different moral perspective and um, to promote the agenda of a very small minority, which, you know, has gone way beyond um, uh, um, 
it's gone way beyond the sort of, uh, you know, wider LGBTQ community to uh, the, the transgender uh, part, which is, you know, at max, one in 300 people. Uh, and that's probably only because a lot of young people are being bulldozed into thinking that, you know, at the age when their sexuality is, you know, they're coming into it. Um, or much earlier. Yeah. Uh, there are plenty of stories at, at children being encouraged towards this. Right. And and so it's an extremely tiny minority of people. Um, and the, to say that the tail is wagging the dog uh, is is um, the understatement of the year, where all a society has to give special privileges and endorsement to, um, you know, the views and behavior of uh, a tiny fraction of people. And that's at the expense of other people. And I mean, one of the, you know, most obvious examples is where you have um, biological men, uh, uh, quote-unquote, identify as women, um, on women's athletic teams or in women's changing rooms or in women's um, washrooms. And, uh, you know, people who started off by saying, well, gee, you know, people are hard done by and we need to look after them and protect them from persecution, all of a sudden... You've got men coming into women's washrooms and changing rooms and, well, you know, locker rooms and athletic teams and all the rest of it. And what about the rights of all the women who a few years ago, you know, the, the, the feminist movement was um, making the same case for, for women who were downtra- downtrodden and oppressed. And now the, the, the people who were in the vanguard of that movement, like J.K. Rowling, are, are saying, well, wait a minute, wait, I don't want men coming into women's washrooms, and they're being hounded mercilessly. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just bizarre to, to, to look at it. Pe- people that, you know, are, 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 that, anyway, I mean, I think, I think many people are familiar with that sort of story. So people sign on to something at the beginning that seems to be reasonable. Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, you turn around and realize you've bought into something that is not reasonable. And I dare say that, you know, in the early 1930s in Germany, that the citizenry as a whole, faced with hyperinflation and uh, economic disaster that was the result of unfair, you know, unreasonable terms imposed on Germany at the end of the First World War, um, that that they looked at at Hitler and his people as you know, well, you know, there's some things I don't like about them, but basically they're just going to restore order and 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 uh, bring the economy back into into a place where you, you know we can actually live here, and so you know people bought into it, and then it turned out to be a whole another kettle of fish, and then it was too late, uh, and so I think. That's the point we're at in our society. Um, and so I think when things like this happen, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it might even be a good thing in a way because it's a wake-up call. Uh, you know, we have to realize where this is going and say, no, that's not, that's not helpful 
to the majority of people in our society, that's not really helpful, even to the people that are in the middle of it. And we don't want that, you know? Yeah, the, the devil is overplaying his hand, I guess you could say. That's exactly how I would put it. And I think C.S. Lewis would have said that. The devil is at his most persuasive when people actually don't believe that he exists. Right. But when people actually get a... Um, a taste a of the taste. repercussions. Yes, yeah, so when people get a taste of of the demonic as it actually is, starts to come out into the open, it's not something that's very appealing to people, uh, to say the least. I mean, I remember and, as a university... Sorry? I was just going to say, I th the only people that, you know, something like the Sam Smith performance, you know, might cause to walk back are those who are sympathetic to the LGBTQ community in the sense that, you know, maybe it's maybe homosexual sex, for example, isn't immoral. Maybe that's a thought that they're entertaining and maybe it's something that the church needs to embrace. And so perhaps they would look at something like this and, and begin to reconsider, but I doubt it. Um, so... I guess, you know, I can be a, a bit, well, so well, when we think about accepting something that seems reasonable, um, such as, uh, gosh, I don't even know how to say this, but when, when you're, when the message is saying, hey, LGBTQ people are being persecuted, yes, every single just and moral person, person should say, well, that that's wrong. You know, nobody should be getting persecuted. But it's a very, uh, it's a very small leap from that to, okay, now we want to promote this, this, I'll call it an ideology, you know, others wouldn't probably call it that. But that's a very small leap to go from protection to promotion. And I think what we naively do sometimes is we, we and it's very similar to what you, you the example you used of race based issues, where every right and just person would say yes, every person, no matter the color of their skin, doesn't matter what their ethnicity is, should be treated with the utmost dignity, respect, and uh, helped to to thrive in society. Society should be set up so that everybody can thrive. Um, but there's a small leap from that to the ideological undergirdings that drive a lot of the movements you know that carry these messages and i think it's the same for the lgbt thing and i just wonder if we need to be more uh discerning in terms of what we are willing to accept well yeah i i mean let's face it if from our perspective or from a biblical perspective if we believe that uh for instance homosexual conduct is out of order it's out of god's order uh then um uh promoting it is going to be in the end be promoting something that is going to have a lot of negative results right and um i mean someone said to me or and i'm sorry i i heard a comment on media that um the gay whole gay marriage thing was a bit of a farce because it was and this was someone with i think within the gay community saying it imposes 
a value on the gay community that the gay gay community doesn't exist in the gay community, which is monogamy, right? And uh, and and so uh, really, uh, you know, it's 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 not necessarily something that many people in the gay community even are seeking or are seeking um, because they don't aspire to a monogamous monogamous relationship. That's just not part of the culture. Uh, and, um, I think that's probably true. Uh, so you're looking at it and saying, this is a dysfunctional culture, you know, where people are, uh, I mean, it would be true of, of heterosexual behavior. If people were sleeping around all the time, there was no faithfulness, uh, in, you know, it within marriage, um, then, no one in their right mind would view that as being a positive. That's a negative. It's it's a negative in terms of the people involved, and it's a negative in terms of society. Uh, so, uh, so, so there's something in gay culture that is inherently dysfunctional uh, and does not promote stability and order in and. Um, uh, mental mental health even in society because we know that stable relationships, faithful, stable, monogamous relationships, every single study that has ever been done uh, indicates that people involved in those relationships and their children are in far better, better mental and emotional state than people that are not in those kind of relationships. So there's There is a dysfunction there. So on the one hand, we can say we don't want persecution. We don't want people to be treated badly because they're they're uh, lesbian, gay, whatever. Um, but on the other hand, we still look at it and say, but that culture is dysfunctional. It's there's something in it that's not working. And I think that the whole push toward the transgender, where the focus on transgender has has eclipsed. The traditional, even gay and lesbian. So there's a there's a battle going on. Uh, I've read it described as a civil war within the LGBTQ community between the trans people and the gay and lesbian, which is a traditional, so to speak, gay and lesbian, who are about ninety percent or ninety five percent of the community. Um, but the trans people are, you know, saying you're persecuting us. And, of course, the logic of critical theory is the people that are persecuted need to be given all the power to kind of fight back. And so that's why we're seeing some of the stuff happening and it's all being taken to an extreme. It's, it's not good enough anymore just for the media to promote, um, you know, gay or lesbian relationships. Now, that, that's not enough. It has to be transgender uh realities that are being portrayed uh and now we're the fluidity of something like human identity is is destructive and when we make that fluid it is it is our own destruction it's, it's psych psychologically destructive and and the christian has to accept that so some of the things that you're saying might sign sound strong on the surface you know to say that the culture is dysfunctional but the Christian has to accept that on the basis of 
of the reality of how we are sinners. And sin is always dysfunctional and it breeds dysfunction. And I think that the dysfunctional nature of, of, uh, you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that. I mean, ask any psychologist or psychiatrist and they'll refer you to the, the studies, the levels of mental health and depression, all the rest of it in the LGBTQ community. And well, sure the, the woke ones will tell you it's because that they're not, uh, they're not affirmed enough. Right. But, but it, it, it isn't changing even, even now for decades where they have been affirmed, you know, it's, it's not, there hasn't been any, any change in the, the same reason that imposing the idea of monogamy through, uh, you know, allowing gay marriage is ultimately, I don't think it's going to change the, the actual sexual behavior within that. Community. No, of course it won't. It, uh, On the margins, won't. maybe, but nothing more than that. Not deeply. And you're right. It is, it is being, sexual immorality in general is affirmed at, at the highest level of, of society. I mean, both politically speaking and, and in pop culture. We see that in the Sam Smith performance and the, the thousands and thousands of people who applaud it, uh, that you, I don't think you can get any more accepted and affirmed than that, than a man dressing up like the devil and making himself sexually explicit on the screen for millions of viewers. And, and yet still there is the rally cry for uh, liberating the oppressed. And it's like, well, it's, it's, the only oppression you're experiencing is the oppression of sin. And it's, it's, it's ruinous. With people just down the road from where you live in a place starting with H, uh, we hope that it's a small group of people that are pr promoting an agenda and it's propaganda. That's what it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's trying to persuade people that something is true that isn't true. Uh, but if you push it at them all the time, just like, you know, the Chinese government says, well, no one's died of COVID, you know, well, we know that probably a million or a million and a half people have died in the last few weeks in China. They, they, they say, oh, our balloons are just, you know, sightseeing balloons and all the rest of it. You know, people in China believe that because they've been fed the propaganda line. Um, but, and, and it's, and, and people in Russia, you know, have been fed the propaganda line by Putin. And so Hollywood feeds propaganda line about stuff like this. And, and definitely it's an echo chamber for sure. But the, the, the sad thing is that they have access to the airwaves. Although I, I'd like to point out that over the last 10 years or so, the audience levels for all of these award ceremonies from the Oscars on down have just been decimated. Like they're a fraction of what they were, partly because this is not why people tune in. No. That type of thing. Exactly. They're not interested. And, and yet the we it seems like they are absolutely intent on keeping going, you know, on pushing the envelope further and further. But my my feeling is that as dysfunctional as uh sexual immorality is in any community if you go even a layer deeper it it's bred from the dysfunction of how we view um identity in in general it's been a while since we've brought up rousseau on this podcast but i think this is a good moment to to bring up that that age old quote of man is born free and everywhere he is in chains 
and the, the socio-political uh, philosophy that follows from the idea that man is born a free individual and therefore society is is really the oppressive structure that holds him down. Uh, morals, religion, these things are oppressive structures that, that hold the individual down, that oppress them. And when we, when we think that society is atomic, that we are all just atoms floating around, bumping off of one another, uh, then we are bound to think that our utmost good is our highest self-expression of whatever we feel to express. And should anybody ever do anything to temper our self-expression for religious reasons or otherwise, then that person, by definition to us, is, is oppressing us. And so I think what we have now is it's just the, the overgrowth of centuries of uh, wrong thinking around human identity and if you know that all sounds quite postmodern, but that even roots back into uh, philosophies of materialism and naturalism. That if all we are is is a sack of meat, and our brains are just you know thirty pound blobs of meat, then you know our our social view is just a mirror of of what we think we are physically. Uh, it's just atoms bouncing around, and so we can do whatever we want. Who's to say what's right or wrong? Um, and that, yeah, the, but, but the contradiction is these people are very conscious of what's right and wrong. The people that on the Grammys, you know, they they have a very definite sense of what's right and wrong. I mean, at least as Christians, we have a reason to believe in right and wrong. Well, right and wrong gets redefined to liberation and oppression. So if you are oppressing, you're wrong. If you're liberating, you're, you're right. They, they don't have a rational basis for affirming the identity of right and wrong of course not. or anything else. Because all we are is a bunch of atoms, you pointed out. Then there's no such thing as morality. And, and that's the fundamental criticism of, uh, you know, that's what led people like Camus and Sartre to uh, an existentialist position where, you know, they just couldn't take the stress anymore. <laughs> I'm not uh, familiar and, with those names. Can you educate me on that? Well, uh, Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre were the French existentialist uh, philosophers who um, got disillusioned with socialism and, and you know, they, they, they thought socialism was sort of the be-all and end-all. Um, until you know the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia and so on, and um, but uh, they had to look at their own philosophy, uh, which you know is materialistic, and there's no such thing as right and wrong, good or evil, um, and and it led them eventually, even the things they believed in, they got disillusioned with, and it was a philosophy of despair. And that's what led to people like Derrida and so on, who are the postmodernists. They were the people that tried to pick up the pieces after people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus uh, gave up on uh, trying to find meaning and, and basically said, well, you just have to live day by day and find some meaning in who you are or whatever, um, even though there's nothing ultimately out there. Um, it's very despairing. Uh, you know, but but what the postmodernists did was they reintroduced a whole value structure from Karl Marx and and going back even beyond that to 
Hegel, the philosopher, German philosopher who lived uh, several hundred years ago, and they reintroduced a whole system of values uh, that um, it has it it's in it it doesn't cohere with on the what on the one hand they're saying we're just a collection of atoms there's no meaning to life but on the other hand they're saying there's a whole set of values whereby you know the people that are at the bottom of the heap have to be liberated and treated better and you know, it's it's Marxist class warfare taken mm-hmm. to an extreme. Uh, and you see, we, you, people say, well, where did Marx get it from? Where did Marx get his idea of a socialist utopia from? Well, he got it, he was a Jew, and he got it from the end of the book of Isaiah, where it talks about the lion lying down down with the lamb. And Marx, Marx although he didn't believe in God, nevertheless, he saw that as a utopian vision mm-hmm. and felt that it could be realized by secular means, even though his philosophy of dialectical materialism um, didn't allow for uh, any sense of meaning in life or any sense of right and wrong or what was good or what was evil. He simply borrowed from the Old Testament. And that's what these people do. You know, they have to borrow from something outside of their worldview to make their worldview work. Right. Uh, and and generally, they borrow some sense, some set of good versus evil, a grid out there. They borrow from somewhere. They borrow the idea of good and evil, basically, from the Christian civilization that they're trying to destroy. And then redefine it. They borrow it and then redefine it, even though it's even though they're self-contradictory. It doesn't fit with their own philosophy. And that's the... Uh, that's that's the thing that, you know, ultimately brings these systems to destruction. Well, it all comes down to origins, right? So uh, Marx's origin of of humanity is that we are all, all fundamentally economic beings, and oppression is kind of just built into uh, the, the way that we relate. I'm sure I'm you know overly simplifying that, um, but at well, bottom. Marx built Hegel said Hegel is the source of it all, and he said that history moves forward by a uh, process of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And so, that's the dialectic, right? right? The back and forth, and gradually everything's moving upward and upward. Mm-hmm. And um, that was very popular in liberalism in 19th century England, in particular, where people believed that. In in the liberal idea of progress, everything's moving ahead and getting better and better. Mm-hmm. And of course, Darwin borrowed that, and and it was the basis for his theory of evolution. It was a, a philosoph- philosophical point of view that, that Darwin built on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thesis antithesis synthesis simply worked itself out in random mutation and natural selection. Right. Marx and and the synthesis being in, the survival of the fittest. Right. Marx took Marx took. He, uh, Hegel's idea of the dialectic of the of the progress of human history, and but he took the spiritual side of it. Was Hegel still believed in the divine? Marx took the spiritual side of it out, which is why he called it dialectical. That's the Hegel part. Materialism. That's the Marxist part. And didn't he yeah. kind of flip it on its head? So if Hegel was there's the thesis, the antithesis, and those are in dialectic relationship with one another to produce the synthesis so there's the upward progress 
for Marx, isn't it the opposite? Isn't it that the antithesis and the, and the thesis working together actually produce oppression? Do I have that right? No, Marx believed that, that history was moving upward uh, and that eventually it mm. would... To like an uh, economic utopia. It would plateau in the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, and, in, and, and it's interesting. Of course, Hegel, Hegel saw the process more philosophically, and he believed that his own philosophy was the ultimate. You see, this is the thing, when you have an ever upward progress, um, you know, who is to say that Hegel was only partway up the ladder and he wasn't seeing something that was ahead of him, but he actually decreed that where he reached in his understanding was you couldn't go any further. So the dialectic stopped with Hegel. And see, Marx said the same thing. The dialectic stops with me. It can't, can't get any better than this, so to speak. And of course, the, the it played out in the so-called utopia of Maoist China and Soviet Russia. It was catastrophe. And that's why people stopped believing in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's yeah. only the... the the, the 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 strongest Hegelian force in the world today is Darwinian evolution because the political side of it's dead, and the philosophical side of it's dead, but the biological side of it still remains alive, and is 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 people people believe it's burnt into people's mind that there is a dialectic of upward progress that is still continuing. Can you and, um, simply define the word dialectic for me? The dialectic is a back and forth movement that right. generates progress. Right. Uh, so at a simple level, a dialectic is you have an idea and say, well, Dave, I think we should do, you know, a podcast on such and such. Mm-hmm. And I come back at you and I have a better idea. And I, and I say, well, I think maybe it should be like this. But what happens is that out of, your contribution and my contribution, something even better than that comes. That's a dialectic, right? It's an idea anybody can understand. It's common sense in one sense. But Hegel used it as a philosophical basis for the development of history and humanity and and put a whole spiritual, you know, Um, dimension. So I think this is it, what I was was trying to get out earlier. So with Hegel, there is the, the existence of ideas and perhaps that is more fundamental to us than uh than material things you, you know like you're saying that uh hegel still believes in in the divine um and so it's that dialectic between ideas that then produces the upward progress of society which is evidenced in materialistic outcomes whereas i think marx turned that on its head and said actually what's most fundamental to humans is the material and that goes along with the fact that he did not believe in the divine so our dialectic exists materialistically. It, it is not most fundamentally an exchange of idea that produces progress. It is an exchange of material. It's 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 uh, uh, it's production. It's economic that then produces progress. And and that's it's it's the exchange of material that then produces the ideas. And the ideas are what govern society. And so that then connects you to that. That's what brings you into postmodernism. You know, by some leap. In the sense that we have to deconstruct the ideas because it's the ideas that uphold the oppression. Well, yes, and no. I mean, Marx uh, saw the, the the Marx saw history developing as a clash between 
forces. Uh, let's call them forces. There was the the bourgeoisie of his day, um, the people that had money, and there was the oppressed workers. And there was the how history develops is it comes to a conflict. The 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 there is an oppressor and an oppressed, and there's a conflict and a higher level of existence emerges out of the conflict. And uh, what he borrowed from Hegel was that is kind of mystical that all through history, the development of humanity was governed by an ever upward line of progress. And um, uh, but he saw he 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 applied an economic aspect to it that wasn't in Hegel's thinking. And uh, and so and that's because uh, things have to be material for Marx. Well, yeah, because he didn't believe in God, right? That he, oh, oh, but yet, but because he was influenced by Hegel, he still believed in this mystical development of history. That's a self contradiction in Marxism. He still believed in that, and uh, and so a critical theory as we have it today is just an outgrowth of Marxism. It's an outgrowth of Marx's theory of oppressed versus oppressor, and of clashes between the two leading to the oppressed group winning. That's Marxism, right? Getting liberation. Sorry? Getting liberation. Yeah, so critical. and and so, uh, But Marx actually believed in a utopia. He actually believed that uh, when all was said and done, there would be universal peace, uh, everybody would be happy. Uh, He believed, this was a ridiculous part, that government would be reduced in scope because people would all be getting along with each other, you know. And, I mean, he, he didn't live to foresee, you know, right. what it actually looked like in practice. It's the absolute opposite of, of, of that. Um, the only reason you can think that that would be the outcome is if you think that people are, are inherently good. Well, um, I, I think, I, 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 don't, I don't know how... Exactly, Marx looked to that. I mean, I think he thought that uh, there was the 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 oppressed side was better somehow from a moral perspective than the oppressor, and uh, uh, you know maybe as a Jew he was looking at the Exodus and Pharaoh and the Jewish people in Egypt, and you never know, you know, how these things uh, affect people, but. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's all a, a question of where people borrow uh, Judeo-Christian concepts when they need to borrow them. And, and then when they're inconvenient, they discard them, but they've actually built their whole worldview on, on, on borrowed right. you know, money, so to speak, and, yeah. and being, for instance, the idea that there is such a thing as good and such a thing as evil, because... Right. You know, critical art from which we can't function, right? And critical theory would definitely critical theory people would definitely assert that there's a, a a good and an evil. They would see the Grammy performance as being good, and they would see people like you and me as being evil, right? So they, you know, there's an inversion, obviously, just like Hence, the cancel culture will call evil good and good evil. But the the interesting thing is that you and I have. A, a basis in terms of what we believe, we can 
quite coherently um, explain why we believe in good and evil. They believe in good and evil, but they have absolutely no means of explaining why they believe in good and evil because the very idea of good and evil is not in their worldview. Uh, and so uh, it's they, they borrowed it from us and they're turning it against us. Uh, so systems like that uh, are internally contradictory and they don't last. It's why you see all these developments in science like Corey Stevenson was telling us about a few weeks ago on our podcast, where uh, um, because we believe that God made the universe, God is a super rational being, it, it, it makes sense. Therefore, it's predictable that uh, scientific discoveries, in spite of our fallen human nature, will eventually begin to validate the biblical account. Um, and they are. And, and so the you know, modern scientific materialistic system is beginning to collapse in and itself uh, because it's built on contradiction and stupidity, uh, if I could use that strong word. I think you should. So, and what's interesting, right, is, so someone like Sam Smith is human like all of us, which means that he's looking for meaning. And so in his display at the Grammys, that in some way is him trying to make meaning of his life. And I don't know if the meaning is in the shock that he knows he's producing, the waves that he knows he's sending through uh, much of the American people. Um, and and out of that, he finds a sense of fleeting satisfaction. But he can't, he can't escape the reality that he's, he needs to make meaning somehow. And so our prayer should be that he would quickly reach the bottom of that well um, and see how empty of meaning his philosophy of life is. Well, it's, he, he's insulated probably by money, you know, because he's making a lot of money out of it. It's hard to tell sometimes, is he being driven by anger or is he being driven by money? Right. Or both. Or both. We don't know. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth were rich from her exclusive luxuries. So not, uh, as far as I understand, not literally talking about sexual immorality here, um, but certainly there's some kind of tie-in to some of the things we're discussing to what, uh, John sees here in Revelation 18. Let's look at this for our How to be, Read the Bible in 2023 and unpack this passage a bit. John uses the word pornaya, which we can all understand what it means, sexual immorality, uh, in the book of Revelation to refer to compromise with the world, with the ungodly world system. 
and uh, he paints this picture of Babylon, uh, and he links it with um, commerce, wealth, uh, the pursuit of wealth, divorce from morality. And uh, it's tied up with idolatrous worship because if you worship mammon, you'll probably worship other idols and you'll be drawn into demonic activities and so on. So it's all part and parcel of the same thing. And so he, I think he uses the word pornaya as kind of shock value. He's, he's, he's preaching to the people in the seven churches. He's, he's preaching to the Christians in that culture who are being uh, threatened that if they don't participate in idolatrous worship of the emperor, uh, that they'll lose their employment and their income. Mm -hmm. And so emperor worship was closely tied in with the economic structures of society, where there were trade guilds, uh, where everyone that had employment of any sort was part of a guild, kind of like a labor union, except it would apply to people in any profession at all. Um, and the Romans came into this and said, every one of these trade guilds, business organizations, trade unions, whatever you want to call them, uh, has to hold their own uh, ceremonies where they worship Caesar as God. And if you don't participate, you're kicked out. And of course, if you're kicked out, there's no social welfare system. You'll die and your family will die. You're, you're, ca you're cast out. And so the Christians were under enormous I thought I thought you were about to say your cat will die. Your cats will die. <laughs> well, a couple of daughters are very attached to your cats, so hopefully not. Um, so the so the idea is that uh, John is is saying that kind of compromise with the secular culture uh, and uh, its pursuit of uh, wealth is part of the whole demonic. You know where you per put the pursuit of wealth and money ahead of God. That's a demonic activity. And John says that's pornaya. That's, that's sexual immorality. And the idea and, is because, you're, because Babylon, which is the world system, is portrayed as a prostitute, and right. you're engaging in illicit relations with the prostitute when you're, um, you're participating in an ungodly economic system. Right. That's what yes, saying. Interesting, you know, to... To think about it, um, the pursuit of wealth in in a compromised way is just another aspect of the devil's perversion of God's intention. So God's intention is that we would be fruitful people, we would multiply, we would uh, take Eden and spread it throughout the rest of the world. Uh, you know, that's the original intention in Genesis. Um, and what the devil does is he perverts, and so now we 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 get gain, but we get gain unjustly. And when we're participating in unjust gain, then we're perverting God's original intention. I think this is an area where Christians often get tripped up, where they think to gain is uh, implicitly wrong or inherently wrong. But that's not the picture that I see in, in the Bible at all. It's, it's unjust gain that's wrong. And what makes it unjust, you know, in this instance, was it Augustine that defined justice as essentially... Um, people getting what's due to them 
didn't he have that that famous uh, statement about how on, only a only a society that gives God his due is a just society. Otherwise, we're inherently unjust if God is not getting his due. Um, I might have that wrong. I think it was him that, that talked about that. But in this instance, God's due from the Christian is trust, it's faith, it's belief, it's, uh, it's lordship. And so in this instance, they're having to compromise on the lordship of Christ in order to secure their financial stability. And here John is warning them against doing that and saying, trust God, keep going. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but can't yeah. kill the soul. And, and, and interestingly, he uses the medium of the written, written word uh, in Revelation chapter 18 that you quoted to paint uh, a, uh, a, a, an astonishing um, and horrific picture of the world system Today, you turn on the Grammys and see the same thing. Exactly. And and I think, okay, so let's just explore that a little bit. It is unjust because we mar the image of God. We celebrate the marring of God's image, maybe. We promote the destruction of the image of God in mankind when we celebrate that kind of sexual immorality. And that is unjust because God is, God is due something entirely different to that kind of behavior. God is due our repentance. God is due our belief. He's due, he's due our worship through the use of our bodies. Um, and that makes our society an unjust society. And my, my feeling, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, I'm, I think you probably do, is that no society can ultimately be just as long as it's not a Christian society. And I, I believe that on the, on the basis of the fact that until God is given his due, we will always be unjust. And if we are unjust at that foundational level, then injustice will wreak havoc through all the layers of our society, which is why I think the church is so important and our primary mission uh, is the Christianization of the soul. It's the reaching of the lost and the making of disciples so that people learn to give give God what is due unto him in Christ Jesus. And so we look at that display at the Grammys and it's, it's an awful display of injustice against God and, and against our fellow man. Um, and we are, what John says here, we are drunk with the wine of Babylon's adultery, all in the name of financial gain or really power is what I would put it down to. That's the ironic thing about the postmodernists is they say everything's about power. And in fact, what they are after is power. Absolutely. It's a good uh, transition into, um, oh, well, I guess just to summarize how to read the Bible. How to read the Bible, Revelation edition by David's book, Mystery Explained, um, and the book that he uh, co-authored with uh, G.K. Beale as well, which is called Revelation a shorter commentary, but there's nothing short about it. It's very long. I think I've read uh, G.K. Bill's lengthier one as well. I think I've read all three. I went through a, uh, I went through a strong revelation phase a couple years ago where I just plowed through all of those. Well, okay, it is the prize. It was easy. I I loved every second of it. Um, so let's talk about this book. So we're 
We're finishing up our conversations around the incarnation of God by John C. Clarke and Marcus Peter Johnson. Highly recommend people grab a hold of the of this book and also Marcus Peter Johnson's um, uh, predecessor to it called uh, One with Christ. So helpful and so beautiful. And perfectly, uh, they close out the book with a chapter on the meaning of marriage and sex um, and even uh, reproduction, uh, having babies. And so we want to talk about that because they are, remember, the whole theme of this book is that all, all meaning is found in Christ. So we, we know God in Christ and we know what it is to be human in Christ because Jesus Christ uh, is God incarnate. I'm, tr I'm trying to recall their, their great definition at the beginning of the book of the incarnation, that God without ever ceasing to be what he is or who he is, became what he was not human in order to reconcile humanity unto himself. And so in the incarnation, what, what these authors are positing is that we actually have, we have a theological meaning of marriage and sex and sexuality. And so that's what we want to talk about today. Now they ground it in um, in the, the grounded in Genesis. So if we're going to understand sex, sexuality, marriage, then we have to understand what it means to be made in God's image. That's where they begin. And what they put forward is that most fundamentally to be made in God's image is to be made male and female. Let us make man in our image. So God made us male and female. And the argument that they're making there is that we can't image God alone. You can't image God just as Adam. You can't image God with two Adams. You can't image God with one Eve or two Eve. You have to image God as Adam and Eve. And the imaging there is the triune imaging. It's the fact that there is unity and distinction. So God the Father is co-eternal with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, they are distinct from one another, but also... Uh, uh, unified completely with one another as well. And so in that nature, that triune nature of God, we have his image in mankind who are also unified one flesh in marriage and also distinct male and female. Is that, am I getting that right? Is that kind of what, what foundation you took away? Uh, yep, absolutely. And that has all kinds of um, huge implication for uh sex and sexuality. So why don't we do this? They hit four examples, divorce, homosexuality, pornography, and abortion. Why don't we talk briefly through those? And uh, certainly some of these might be quite challenging for those of you who are listening, but on the whole, this is really, really helpful. And I think calls us back to uh, a healed understanding of what it means to be human and a holistic understanding of the gospel, what it means to be joined to Christ. So let's begin with Divorce. Yeah, and I, I, uh, uh, I thought this was an excellent chapter. Really, it was. Uh, he makes the point that um, when we violate God's commands in the area of sexuality, uh, we're actually breaking His image, right? Uh, because God has designed us to operate according to the inner relationship within the Trinity, where. There was a, is a mutual interrelationship of that which is unlike um, 
and distinct from each other, uh, but they're joined together uh, to produce a greater whole, so to speak, and which is why Paul in Ephesians 5 grounds his definition of marriage. He's talking about being one flesh, but really he grounds it in the union of Christ and the church. He said, that's really what I'm talking about. So somehow human marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. Why does he say that? Because Christ has a bride. Christ is pictured as the male and the church as the female. And there's only wholeness when um, Christ marries the church, which is why the Bible ends in a, in a wedding feast. Exactly. And I think, so therefore, well, that where, that, we see, where we see, I, I just say this, where we see distortions, um, whether it be in the area of, let's say, divorce, where we're taking apart what God's put together, or um, homosexuality, where we're putting together what God means to be apart, um, we're uh, violating something in the image of God, it's out of order, uh, and so there's a, there's a, that's the reasoning behind it that it's a dysfunction. It's something that's out of order. It's not that God just dislikes homosexual, you know, people who practice homosexuality because He doesn't like them or something. It's because there's something in the interrelationship of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the way that he created us as male and female to mirror that image, that's really, really important. And that only comes to fulfillment, functionality, peace, prosperity, blessing, whatever, uh, when it works the way God in intended it to work, which is one of the reasons why earlier I pointed out that monogamy is, is fairly rare in the, you know, in the gay and lesbian world, um, and therefore, there is, there is that much less stability of relationships, and there isn't the existence of family in the same way, and so on. Uh, it's a, it's a, a loss of the image of God. It's a dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it might be even something uh, worse when you consider what it takes to put a, a family together without a biological mother and father. What, what the cost is there. Uh, but I find, exactly. I find this absolutely stunning, this picture of God making man in his image, and therefore he makes them male and female so that there's the, the unity and the distinctness. And then Christ comes as God incarnate to reconstitute the image of God, to recover and redeem what it means to be human and to rightly image God. And it's that image that Romans 8.29, we've been predestined to be conformed to, the second and last Adam, who succeeds where, where Adam fails and where all those who were in Adam failed after him. Christ succeeds there, and he is re-imaging where Adam and Eve failed to image. And in that re-imaging is the same union of Adam and Eve, and it's Christ and his church. So that in order for us to be conformed into the image of the Son, uh, it, that involves the unity, the marriage of Jesus and his church. And that's 
just as the original image of God had to be Adam and Eve, so also the new created image of God is Jesus and his church. And that's why the Old Testament says God hates divorce, because uh, divorce is a breaking apart of um, the unity of man and woman that mirrors the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so God designed the man and the woman to be together, and what drives him apart uh, is something that is displeasing to God. Yes. Uh, yes. Now, we even Jesus makes allowances for the fact that a divorce may be uh, a permissible in certain circumstances, but it's never seen... Just as God would have been just in divorcing Israel. Well, that's true. Uh, that thought that think, came down. It, in our... Um, in our society, uh, divorce is often the first option, not the last option. Exactly. Uh, you know, when when you and and you know, a divorce often happens because not all the time, but it often happens because two selfish people went into marriage with with straws, both trying to suck out of each other's cup, and when both cups emptied out, then there was nothing in it for either of them, and they split. Instead of which, Christian marriage is based on the idea of what you bring into the marriage, not what you're going to take out of it. And we stick our straws in the eternal well of God, the Holy Spirit, and His grace, and bring the grace of God into our into our marriages, which is why they last longer. Yes, and just as God was... Uh endlessly merciful with Israel, so also we are to bring that same um, quality into our marriages as well. As you say, uh, in our culture, divorce is oftentimes the first option for people, um, and we've made it so easy for people to get divorced in recent decades. Um, but we should hold on to the fact that our, our marriages reflect the image of God in a, gosh, in a way that's almost impossible to adequately describe. Um, and they make a good point here, because obviously this is the moment where single people go, well, what about me? And they make this great statement. They say the fact that a human has being is predicated upon the existence of two others joined as one. In other words, everybody has a mom and a dad. Thus, any given human being requires two others in such a way that human existence is necessarily and fundamentally tripersonal. So, in essence, once the ball got rolling with Adam and Eve, there's always, from that point on, been the reality of tripersonal uh, identity. And so we're imaging God. Um, but this this notion that God is... He is the first indwelling uh, person in, in his union between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that being the basis for how we understand humanity. You can't go further back than that in trying to get a grasp on your identity. It, it doesn't go deeper, and it certainly flies in the face of something like man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Well, man is not born free. Man is born bound to his mom and dad or her mom and dad. We are, we are born accountable, and that is not evil. That is 
that is ref- reflecting God's image. And so it, in a very real sense, we are um, interconnected and interrelated with one another. And the sooner we accept that, um, the sooner our societies can start to be put in, in right order. So divorce is a marring of that. Um, and it's a, a very painful one. And I know that there are probably dozens and dozens of people who listen to this podcast that have undergone divorce. But I would just encourage the church at this stage to strongly consider the implications of what it means to be, to take marriage so lightly that divorce is such an easy option. Um, And I'm not saying that most Christians think that way. In fact, most don't. And even those who have experienced divorce have experienced it through lots of turmoil and lots of pain. T.F. Torrance says this, he says, if Christian marriage is meant to reflect the union between Christ and the church, how can the church tolerate divorce? What would divorce mean but that Christ can and may cut off his church, that he holds on to us only so far as we prove faithful? Where they Where then would we fickle and faithless sinners be? This must make us ask whether the current attitude to divorce in the church is not evident of something very wrong, in fact, evidence of a serious weakness in its grasp of the gospel. And I do think that that's right. I think because our grasp of the gospel often doesn't go beyond God has forgiven me of my sin and therefore he'll continue to forgive me of my sin uh, and not into something like union with Christ that has been, our, our soteriology has implications across the board of the rest of our living. Divorce being one of them. Yeah. We could talk a little bit more about homosexuality um, because I think this, they bring up some points here that most people probably haven't considered. Do you want to kick that off? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, in Genesis, God says male and female, he created them. He made them in the image of God. So what that implies is that uh, the the complementary nature of the man and the woman, when put together, somehow reflects the complementary nature of the Trinity. And that God designed the closest human union to be with the two distinct and different parties that would bring a greater whole uh, as a result of their union. And um, so uh, um, they put it distinction within communion that characterizes humankind as male and female is absolutely basic to the image of God. Is this? Uh, yeah, they say where God is concerned, union requires distinctions among persons. And that's because the unity that God himself has in himself is a unity of distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Therefore, if we are to reflect God, our unity must also be the, the existence of distinct persons. And the, he makes a statement here. So from the time of the first 
male and female, every human being, every image of God, image bearer, has had something extraordinary in common. Each of us owes our existence to both a divine and a human union of persons. Mm -hmm. We are created by and we image God, who has a union of persons as one God. We are also created by and image our parents, who has a union of persons, our one flesh. So personal union is the ground of all human being. And and uh, and so um and then he ties this in with Jesus and his bride. Uh so um uh to truly image God, Jesus himself needs his bride. He needs that male and female dimension. If he's going to be which he is, the new Adam. Adam uh, needed Eve to complete him, and Jesus needs his church to complete him. So we're on pretty deep uh, theological, biblical grounds here. And so... Which they is exactly make, what they, Calvin says, that Christ is on top of to count himself complete without her. Right. And, and so when God the Son became incarnate, he gave to marriage and to the physical intimacy inherent to it a meaning it could never have had on its own. So the fact that Jesus himself came into this world and uh, hung naked on the cross, echoing the nakedness of the garden, but um, he that symbolizes the fact he took our shame upon himself to bring redemption. So whereas Adam and Eve fell, and then they fell into shame and, and, and became ashamed of their nakedness, and then there was all sorts of problems as a result, Jesus comes into this world, winds up, hanging naked on the cross to take our shame away and to bring about a new perfect union between him and his bride, the church. So this whole male and female thing is fundamental to the nature of reality. That's, that's the point that the Bible makes. And when we move away from the nature of reality, we get into trouble, uh, which is why there's a, a problem with, um, uh, with homosexuality, because uh, it's joining together what God, if divorce is putting asunder what God has joined together, then homosexuality is joining together what God has put asunder. Right. So, uh, very clever way of saying it. Just, just as surely as solitary Adam could not image God, neither could Adam multiply by two. Male and female are personal distinctions within our common humanity that define humanity. Whereas Father, Son, and Spirit are personal distinctions within the one God that define God. Where God is concerned, union requires distinction among persons. Two Adams, or a hundred more for that matter, could not fulfill the mandate that followed their creation, which is to be fruitful and multiply. So that, so that um, the image, so that uh, it, the reasons why it is not good for Adam to be joined to another Adam are number one, that the image of God requires the male and the female, and in doing so mirrors the Trinity. And number two, that two Adams could not fulfill the kingdom mandate of be fruitful and multiply. So that homosexual conduct, as the Apostle Paul pointed out in Romans chapter one, is um, is is a um, uh, a dysfunction of the creation that that God made, uh, and, uh, it's the, ex what did you say? The exchange of truth for a lie, the exchange of truth for a lie. Uh, and, 
and so um, they go on to connect that about idol worship and how in in homosexual uh, union we are turned in on ourselves in same gender yeah. sex. Yeah, and yeah. and that is nothing less than the worship of self, which is why Paul connects homosexuality to idolatry in Romans chapter one. Which is, but by the way, the way that Charles Cranfield interprets it in his Romans commentary, and uh, which I think, you know, he wrote before a lot of the current stuff was going on. Uh, so, you know, what they're trying to say is interesting and profound in that um, sometimes Christians are portrayed as condemning homosexual conduct for no particular reason, just because you know, it violates an ancient Near Eastern code of ethics or something mm-hmm. like that. Yet the curious thing is that the same, you know, across human cultures of all ages, there have been very, very few cultures that promoted homosexual conduct or regarded it as anything other than a dysfunction mm-hmm. or even a, a deviance. Um, and and that's true in, in most parts of the world today uh, still. And so you you have to wonder why you know that is the case, uh, why why it is that there's something something instinctive in human nature that turns against that, because uh, you know if if it's linked to the fact that it's a violation of how God actually made us in the first place, that He didn't intend for us to be that way, it would explain why. You know, there is uh, a resistance to uh, homosexual conduct uh, and has been through all ages of history, with very few exceptions, one of which was certain parts of ancient Greece. I think in the upper classes of ancient Greece, you, you, uh, you know, but uh, the exception proves the rule, you know, virtually nowhere else ever has that been the case until our modern day and uh so um he grounds it in the nature of how god created humanity and in that case homosexuality uh is a it is a product of the fall and and i think it's really important to say something here which is that there are all sorts of people who are affected by the fall the fall we're all affected by the fall uh, in different ways, and uh, um, you know, including physical disability, for instance, or uh, there's there's a whole you know um, a whole range of ways in which all of us are affected uh, physically, psychologically, emotionally, and our our quality of our life is diminished because we live in a fallen world, um, and so someone who is uh, you know, as homosexual, uh, it's just another example of one one of the many ways in which our our whole society, our whole humanity, has become victim of a dysfunction. Uh, and 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 I reason I don't know if, I, if I'm getting this across rightly. It's that we mustn't pick out something like that and say, well, that's a particular evil. Um, and, uh, you know, that is worse than other evils. Um, 
As a matter of fact, uh, if a person who's homosexual, you know, it largely may not be something that is under their control. Uh, and so it's not as if, you know, um, they went out and decided to murder someone or rob the bank or made a conscious moral decision. It's just part of who they are, uh, which is one of the reasons why we have to be extremely compassionate and why we have to not identify people as homosexuals, but we can identify people who have, for instance, same-sex attraction issues. But we we don't identify them by their sexual uh, conduct or inclination. That's not how we categorize people. They're a son or a daughter of God dealing with a dysfunction, just like all of us yeah. deal with various dysfunctions. I don't think any any way from the book now, but I think some of these things need to be said. Well, I don't think that anybody should be identified by what, whatever uh, dysfunction or sin they experience as a result of the fall. Um, I think we should be identified as those who are in Christ. And I think that the encouragement to those who have struggled with sexual immorality is that Christ and because of Christ and his church, Jesus is our right sexual response in imaging God. The unity that Jesus has with his church, the union that they have, is is the making right, the the making holy of uh of our sexual desires. And you know, you have to kind of let your mind explore that a bit, because obviously there's not an actual sexual union between Jesus and his church. But the New Testament does unapologetically paint that kind of union. And it's like you said, it's Ephesians 5. It's a man and his bride, Jesus and his church. It is the same kind of union. And so in Christ, we're sanctified. In Christ, we're made holy. So our hope of holiness isn't in... uh you know, white knuckling our way through life and and um, striving. Our hope of holiness is in Christ alone. And the more we, I think, submit to that truth and uh, and abide in the vine through prayer, through Christian community, through scripture study, um, through fasting, you know, denying ourselves, I think that his life flows to us and we are transformed. Jesus Christ does not just justify us. He also sanctifies us. He makes us holy. And they make the point, you know, where where Christ was uncovered on the cross, oftentimes when we depict him, we cover him because we are ashamed of a naked Savior. But it's in his nakedness that he, he sanctifies our nakedness. He makes us holy. And I have to believe, because I believe the gospel is this good, that no matter our sin and struggle, Jesus is able to sanctify us, that he who began a good work in you will bring it unto completion. That might take my whole life for Jesus to sanctify me where I'm broken. It might take your whole life. Doesn't mean that you're not going to have struggles. But I think in Christ, we are, by his grace, growing and, and improving. And that process of conforming to his image is increasingly more evident over the course of our lives. It has to be. And I don't think our sexuality is uh, is excluded from from that gospel reality. Right. You might, before, they, before we finish, uh, they've got 
some a little bit of material, but it's very good material on pornography, where they talk about um, uh, uh, pornography as a self-preoccupied love devoid of the possibility of life. There's no life comes out of it. Um, which which is what makes it unholy. Yeah, which seeks to exploit rather than give, deriving pleasure at another's expense. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so it's uh, it's a it's a pretty clear uh, explanation of why pornography is so wrong. Yeah, the absurd attempt to make the gift of sexual union what it cannot be, and that is impersonal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. <laughs> it substitutes the holy images of God for impersonal images on a screen. Self-giving love is substituted for self-involved lust. Life-giving communion is substituted for life-sapping masturbation. There's a there's a heavy word. And the beauty of, and fulfillment of personal union is substituted for the sh- by the shame and regret personal preoccupation. And then finally, they tackle abortion, where they talk about the original kingdom mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth which was given by God as we were to reflect God's own life-giving interpersonal love within the Trinity, which is why abortion is so wrong, apart from being murder. And that... um, Because out of God's life-giving love in the Trinity comes creation. And and out of the incarnation of the baby Jesus being born in the womb of of Mary, or out of the womb of Mary, is, is God's condemnation of of uh, abortion and so but they do say the meaning of sexual union biblically is tied inextricably to new life and i think without questions that is one of the problems of our society yes has tried to have sex without life and that's one of the reasons we're in such a mess um and 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 partly because it's for our own convenience we want the pleasure without the responsibility and without the giving the giving being in the having of children. And so that is a reality. I was in Hawaii uh, back in September of last year, having a conversation with my wife and an old friend of mine, and we were sitting in a restaurant and we were talking about abortion. And a woman sitting at the table next to us uh, leans over and inserts herself into our conversation, taking major issue with our position that we were talking through, which is anti-abortion. And... She actually said, in, this is one of her arguments, she actually said that babies or children are an unfortunate outcome of sex. Well, you should have asked her, then do you consider yourself an unfortunate outcome <laughs> of your parents' sex? Uh, we, we went the rounds with her for probably 20 minutes. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where like, I could just, you know, back down, but I don't, she came into my conversation, so we're going to go. Well, he says, why do we kill 4,000 unborn babies every day in the United States alone? Uh, because we're misusing and abusing God's great gift of sex. Make no mistake, in the final analysis, the abortion debate is not about when life begins. It's about the meaning of sex. They're quoting another man here. If fruit bearing is a gift inherent to the blessing of sexual union, then the question of whether such life actually exists is nonsensical. Of course, it exists, and it's and it's uh, it's an assault on God, 
abortion is an is an assault on God because it's an assault on His image, right? And uh, and so uh, they even go so far as taking talking about Golgotha. They say, like all murder, abortion is an assault on God because it's an assault on His image. It takes place as does all hatred for God in the shadow of Golgotha, where our contempt was exposed to its depths. Nothing would satisfy our rebellion save the bloody termination, or shall we say abortion, of God's true image, his one and only begotten son. God experiences birth, but he also experiences its violent end. And, you know, uh, I think that, uh, and I'm not saying, you know, there are people who have abortions, there's all sorts of complex circumstances and all the rest of it, but ultimately... Um, that's not the majority. It, it's sexist pleasure without responsibility. Uh, that's the essence of the birth control pill. And the problem is that if that's how people behave, what kind of hellish world are we going to live in? Uh, and if Wayne is born free and everywhere he is in chains, then it's only a matter of time before my own child is one of those chains. And, and, uh, and where, uh, the ultimate meaning of life is me finding pleasure regardless of what happens to anyone else. Who wants to live in a world like that? You know, and, and uh, unfortunately, abortion is one of the uh, outcomes of the society in, w in which we live. It's uh, horrendous uh, and uh, unacceptable for, for a Christian. Uh, Except under the most extreme alternatives, uh, we had a, a, a friend who went through an abortion because the child, uh, it was a malformation. Um, I can't remember there was no brain or something, but they, she and the child would have died. And yet they went through hell, you know, in that scenario. But the exception proves the rule, I think, that that is not why 99.9% .9 of abortions, I think if we reduced abortion to the odd case where the life of the mother was in danger or the baby was already truly, truly on danger, then we would, we would have, you know, uh, in, <laughs> a, 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 an infinitesimal fraction of the number of abortions that we, we do have. Today. Well, danger now can, has been reconstituted in, uh, you know, in the postmodern sense, to mean even psychological danger. You know, it's sure. the same and, thing with the euthanasian debate in, in Canada. Well, it's not even a debate anymore. Right. The euthanasian right. laws in Canada that I can even be well, suffering okay. from insolvable depression that I can then be given permission to it's, to medically assist in my death. Well, it's frightening, but actually, actually, they've had to back down on that. By fortunately, so I uh, got for that. That's, that's, I, I hope it did. It's certainly been put on ice and I hope it'll never happen. Medical, uh, medical assisted death is one of the highest causes of death in Canada. Well, it, it could well be. Um, and the problem is, of course, and this happened in the, the Netherlands that, that, uh, you know, people make sure that their grandmother dies because they want to inherit her money and this kind of thing happens and it's a it's a horrible world who wants to live in that kind of world we just need, need to lean in the opposite direction so
you know, it's all very well. It, it's Year Lady in Hawaii. It's it's it illustrates the um the stupidity of the human fallen intellect because someone. So here you go. Sorry, as of this is straight from your your government's website, justice.gc.ca. Uh, as of March 17, 2021, persons who wish to receive MAID, which is an acronym for Medical Assistance in Dying, must satisfy the following eligibility criteria. Number one, be 18 years of age or older and have decision-making capacity. Number two, be eligible for publicly funded healthcare services. Number three, make a voluntary request that is not the result of external pressure. Give informed consent, number four, to receive made, meaning that the person has consented to receiving made after they have received all information needed to make the decision. Have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability, in parentheses, excluding a mental illness until March 17th, 2023. Right. So as of March 17th, 2023, that legislation has been tabled. So that's, that is... Have enduring and intolerable physical or psychological suffering that cannot be alleviated under the conditions the person considers acceptable. Yeah, well, too many mental health associations and psychologists and psychiatrists said, wait a minute, uh, you know, this isn't going to work. So uh, I, I just, uh, by the grace of God, and hopefully that will never happen, but it's been put on ice, so I can assure you of that. Uh, as of about, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. I think the whole thing should be walked back entirely. I, I feel fundamentally have issue with it. Yeah, so do I. So let's end on a positive note that in Christ, the church is reestablished and reoriented as male and female in the image of God, given freedom in repentance and forgiveness to experience marital and sexual holiness. In the mystery of Christ and his church, one flesh forevermore, marriage and sex become holy signs redeemed and fulfilled. Male and female, God has created us, Christ and bride, he has recreated us. I want to thank John C. Clark and Marcus Peter Johnson for this wonderful book. We have so enjoyed going through it. Can't encourage people to read it enough that you will get so much out of it. And before everyone goes, just one quick reminder, especially if you're a church leader, to up on your phone, computer, iPad, and go to dwellbible.com slash good or text the word good to 39383 and check out how our partner Dwell can help your church engage with God's word. We love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you, David, for your time as always. And we will see you next week.